this interview was originally done for the speaking podcast. But because Pam has actually achieved results by you know, dealing with politicians and governments, and a lot of that needs to be done at the moment, so that's why I have included it on the Awakening podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on BitChute and YouTube as Speaking Podcast. I also have the Awakening Podcast, the Learn Polish Podcast, the Meditation Podcast, and the Crypto Podcast, and all can be found on ycon.com. Today, my guest from the UK, living in Wales, please welcome Pam Warren. Morning, Roy. How are you? Wonderful. Wonderful. And yourself? Yes, I'm doing good, thank you. It stopped raining in Wales, which is unusual. <laughs> yeah, I think the Welsh weather is like the Irish weather. You get two two weeks of the year with sunshine and you just kind of, yeah, you're happy that you see the sun at that stage. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so you might let the, the audience know. Who's Pam? Yes, of course. So I'm Pam Warren and I am a survivor from the Paddington train crash, which happened in 1999. Um, that was when two high-speed trains crashed head-on at over 130 miles an hour. The carriage I was on got engulfed by a fireball. Unfortunately, 32 people did die during that. I should have been the 33rd. I got severely burnt. I lost my face, my hands and everything. And quite a lot of people in the UK remember that time when I had to wear a plastic mask for two years. Um, that was to have my face grafted and repaired and obviously to give you the face that you can see today. Um, but I then went on while I was recovering to start a campaign because we discovered why the train crash had happened, which was unfortunately profits before safety. And I ran a national campaign against the government and the rail industry to get our rail system made safer. And I'm pleased to say after five years, we won. So that's why the UK has one of the safest rail systems in the um, in Europe, in fact. So congratulations. And I must say, you're looking wonderful because, you know, I mean, they've done it fantastic. I mean, you wouldn't know. I mean, just <laughs> I, I didn't think that your face was, uh, you know, it, it, uh, yeah. So it's a lot of makeup. It's a lot. Of ah, makeup. But still, <laughs> it's you're looking wonderful. So thank you. So that inspired you. So basically, you felt from this incident that happened and i mean it, it, it like it must have been a terrible experience like i mean are you okay to go back into that can you actually remember to, or was that a uh, like did the thing just was that a blackout can you couldn't remember in detail no, it, I, is it one yeah. of these things that goes into slow motion yeah indeed i was conscious throughout i didn't pass out until they um took me away to the track site uh, to the side of the tracks and put me in an ambulance somebody gave me a morphine shot and that's when I passed out um, and I was then in a coma for three weeks um, which is when they told my family not to expect me to make it because of my burn injuries but yes I do remember that day 
I don't tend to articulate anymore what it felt like because that does, I mean, I now live with post-traumatic stress disorder from that time. So I find if I articulate it too much, I then reconnect with the emotions of the time and that sort of sets me off. But I do remember everything and that's what made me determined to, um, when I had recovered a bit, to do something about it. I'm a great believer in there's no point on sitting on the sidelines and just moaning. You need to get up and stand up and be counted. Excellent. I love it. I love it. So when you started doing that, then was it something that you, because obviously, you know, you were going to be, a, you know, getting out in front of people and everything. Were you a competent speaker before that? And also maybe we might go back to your younger age, because I always like to know a person's journey, you know, in the speaking route, because obviously, you know, you're a competent speaker now, but going back younger, what was the situation? Well, actually, I know I had no speaking experience at all before the train crash. Um, and I always refer to myself as pre-crash Pam and post-crash Pam. But pre-crash Pam was, um, I was a financial advisor. I used to sell pension schemes to companies, would you believe? Um, and I ran, had my own company. So I was quite used to being fairly quiet. However, um, I grew up in the sort of Berkshire area of England. And um, although there's a strong local twang to the accent, I, for some reason, didn't develop it. And I always remember at school, if we had a school play on, I was always picked as the narrator. So I would be narrating what was going on in the play. And I think that was because my accent didn't have the Berkshire twang. And then I suppose that made me slightly confident about being in front of people because I was in front of the parents. But I never really thought about it. And post-crash Pam, I was then asked because of the mask and because of my, um, I mean, back then, people say I was famous back then, but I call it notorious. I sort of got used to having to talk to politicians. And when you're talking to politicians, you have to speak with confidence. Otherwise, they can quite easily dismiss you. And then other times people would ask me to stand up and speak. I remember speaking to people like Unison or, you know, big gatherings or the rail industry. And it never really occurred to me not to do it. I mean, yes, I, I get scared. Um, I get the butterflies and I feel a bit nauseous. And, but I think any speaker worth their salt is always going to have that um, slight fear. But at the same time, I think I've always said, when, particularly when I'm talking to other speakers who are just starting out, I say you need a certain amount of ego and I don't mean you're arrogant I just mean you need to be enough of a show-off to not mind standing up and being stared at by people and I think if speakers were totally honest all of us share that little trait there's enough of ego in us to make us overcome that slight fear that we all get to then stand up and articulate properly. Very good. And did you have other people that kind of got on board at the start or were you kind of like, uh, you know, lone woman with, a, you know, with, your, <laughs> <laughs> with your cowboy hat on and your guns and your holster? Um, well, to be honest, I, as I said, I was asked to appear, if you like, at conferences and stuff um, after the train crash because of who I was. I didn't realise you could get paid for speaking. I had no idea about the speaking circuit. Um, so I just used to get up and do it for free and think, oh, that was an interesting experience. 
And it was only when I was talking to somebody in an audience, this was quite a few years later, and they happened to be a professional speaker. And they said, why aren't you doing this as a career? And I went, I didn't even know. I had no idea. <laughs> Dear, you could. So he sort of took me under his wing and he introduced me to an organisation called the Professional Speaking Association, which, although they tend to be more British based, they do have affiliations with the Global Speaking Federation and all that sort of stuff. So you do join quite a big network across the world. And when I joined them, my eyes were opened. I suddenly realised, well, actually, there is a market out there. You can make a living as a speaker, but you have to be certain about what you want to do, why you want to do it, and then how you're going to do it. And I think that's, unfortunately, I get to see a lot of speakers myself anyway. I think quite a few of them, about 50%, I would say, miss those points. They don't address those before they go out and try to speak. Very good, very good. And I think it was uh, the fact that you're going to have like a mentor as such to help you because you know somebody that's experienced that can kind of guide you along. That's a great thing to have because some people they just go out there and with the speakers association because I know that some people have talked on it. it I, I've never actually discussed fees and stuff like that with the actual organization. Is it a kind of a yearly fee you pay with them or how does it actually work with the fees for the speakers association? It's a monthly fee um, and it's not very much. Um, I mean, I, I parted uh, ways with them only because I felt I'd outgrown them a little bit. So back then, it was only about £30 a month. I don't know what they charge now, because um, we are talking 2014, and I stayed with them for about four years. So yes, it's a monthly fee. But with that fee, you then have access to other speakers, obviously, that are part of the organisation. You then can attend a monthly meeting and they have regional meetings all over the place so you can normally find one within easy traveling distance where you get to meet up with your peers and other people some experience some starting out so you've got a good range and it really does help you hone your craft um, I mean you were talking about a mentor when I first started I met one of somebody who's considered one of the best speakers in the UK. And I actually had the audacity after I got to know him a bit to go and ask him and say, would you mentor me? Which to which he agreed. And we used to meet up once a week and he helped me develop what I was going to talk about and how I was going to do it. Because I think, again, importantly, you're not standing on stage to speak for you. You're standing on stage to speak for the audience so you want them to enjoy what you're saying and walk away with good things for themselves and I spent a year a year a year and a half honing I didn't actually do any speaking at all and that I always refer to as my apprenticeship year and I think that stood me in good stead in the future it really got me to appreciate things like stagecraft um, how to walk around on stage and when where to stand when you're speaking and it taught you about microphones, so the do's and don'ts. It also really helped me with the confidence. So even though you get those nerves, how can you easily overcome them so you can perform at your best rather than feeling so ill that you it takes a while for you to get into your flow?
very good. So with the standing on stage, because I know I tend to, I mean, it's mainly Toastmasters that I've done my speaking with, but I tend to just... They're a good organisation too. No, definitely. I mean, I, I'd encourage people to, you know, if you've no chance of getting to speak, get into Toastmasters and there's loads of online clubs now. But I, I used to, I just kind of stand and anchor myself. And unless I'm doing a comedy speech, then I'll be using the stage. But what what's your advice on, like, and what you've learned from uh, the stage presence, like being on the stage, what, what, what do you, where do you recommend people should do it? I think the most interesting thing for me was when you are telling a story, you think of your story in terms of the past, present and future. And where you stand on stage, the audience will respond better to you. So if I can think, think, so when you're talking about the past, you would stand to stage right. And then when you're talking about the present, you move slowly to the middle. And then when you're talking about the future, you move stage left. And because I don't know what it is, there's obviously something going on in people's neurotransmitters or something. But people will follow that story better and remember it better than if you just stood there stock still. Also, I think you've got to remember when we're, when we're talking, I don't know whether you do this or not, but we tend to use our hands a lot, don't we? We express ourselves with our hands. So again, if you're standing still, there's nothing wrong with standing still because it does anchor you. But I feel people get to know a bit more of your personality if they can see you moving around and see that you are a human being. You aren't just a statue stood there. Um, although the biggest mistake I ever did on stage was when I, particularly when I'm nervous, I tend to sort of close up a bit, whereas a speaker has to be a bit more expansive. It feels ex exaggerated. But when I first started, I used to anchor my elbows into my waist. So I was doing this and looking extremely strange when I was talking and I spotted it on a video and just went oh for goodness sake so I've since learned to sort of expand my arms out it does feel unnatural but when somebody's watching you it comes across as just normal I, I have a tendency and I still somebody said I do it on the podcast is I have a tendency to pull when I was on stage I would pull the jacket or something like that and I mean, I wasn't aware of it, but people pointed out. And then when I looked back, I was like, why am I doing that? So, <laughs> it's, a it's nervous natural. twitch or something. Yeah. We've all got them. Yeah. And on the microphones, then what kind of advice would you say on the microphones? Right. Well, with the lapel mic, it's not so bad, except particularly for women. Um, I learned very quickly, don't wear dangly jewellery because it clanks. <laughs> <laughs> and the no, that's important because people wouldn't think of that so it's important yeah. yeah the other thing i learned is always wear um outfits where you can thread a microphone down quite easily because if you're wearing say a dress you don't want to wear one of these body forming dresses where you have to literally unzip to get the microphone in. <laughs> um that's not a good look particularly if it's a cameraman that's trying to mic you up so I learned very quickly is jackets are really good. Um, plus, you could if you've got pockets, even better, because then you can be shoving the mic pack into a pocket rather than having it dangling off your waist. Belts, that's another good way, particularly for you gentlemen. You all tend to wear belts anyway with your trousers, but women not so much. So I learned very quickly to add belts as an accessory. So again, you can hang the mic off you 
with the handheld mics, I wish I had mine out at the moment, it's very important not to hold it. I'm trying to think of something. Oh, hang on a second. I've got my phone here. Look. So if you've got a handheld mic, it's natural to do this because you still want people to see your mouth. But when you do this, your T's and your P's make that p -p -p sound. So it's you shouldn't be holding your microphone here, basically. You should be holding it away so that the air is not flowing across the top of it. And then you get rid of any hisses from the S's and that strange p -p 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 that comes from P's and T's. So that was another valuable lesson I learned with the mics. Oh, brilliant. Love it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Learning. Oh, look, the sun's coming out in Wales. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Take a picture before it disappears. <laughs> and when you're like speaking, then it, like I'm not sure how long you'd be on stage for what's the length and also how do you actually prepare is it something that you'd have notes or you've like kind of or have you rehearsed it so much what's your strategy well it depends what type of speaker you are if you are like myself a keynote speaker that's where people will book you to give a one-off talk um then the usual is about 45 minutes i have had ones where they've only wanted me to speak for 10 um, that's when they've got lots of other speakers. And actually, the shorter the talk, the harder it is to prepare for. Because the others, you've got time to expand on what your point is. So 45 minutes to um, an hour is usual. If you are a workshop or a um, consultant where you're teaching people things, that's a totally different ballgame. That is more... Um, elongated so you might be running half day workshops or day workshop and that is very different preparation to a keynote talk um, I can only really speak from keynotes because obviously that's what I do mainly and keynotes you should aim to when you're developing your story make it interesting but again think about your listener not you you don't have to go into that much detail as in if you can get a 45 minute speech, uh, you only make three points. That is really the maximum you should be making. A, because your audience won't retain everything that you say. So if you've got three points, you can keep repeating them. So it sort of embeds better. The second thing is people will switch off during that 45 minutes. No one could concentrate for 45 minutes. So if you are again making too many points they will lose interest or they'll wander off and then not come back again in their minds and i think if you're if you if you get across three different points that you're trying to emphasize you can always say to them there is more but that will then just encourage them to get you back again so you might get a second gig out of it brilliant yeah excellent so when you mentioned that the start uh, like coming across confident to the politicians because i mean i think in the last year and a half people know how politicians are operating but what kind of tricks i mean you've obviously built as you were going along like how did you build your confidence for that and what would you advise people because there's a lot of people that are trying to make change around the world and you know and what you have done is fantastic because you've actually achieved something and you know the more people that can do that the better world we'll have so what kind of tips could you help people with thank you thank you for that compliment yeah it's 
to be honest, it, it goes back to that old adage. Do you remember, um, I think we're all taught this, imagine them naked. Now, I never imagined a politician naked. I hasten to make that very clear. However, ooh, <laughs> not with some of the politicians I met, yeah. But what you do, what I found worked was to stop and think, to give your brain time to gauge who you're talking to, but always bear in mind, it doesn't matter what their title is, they're still a human being. They are no different to you. So if you are making a valid point or trying to get them to listen to you, they should have enough respect for you as a human being to listen and vice versa. If they're trying to make a point, you should have the respect to listen to them. I don't think confrontation ever works either. If you're trying to change somebody's mind, the minute you start getting assertive or aggressive, their backs go up, don't they? It naturally happens, you get defensive. So I found again, my strongest ally was persuasion. And I tried to make it pragmatic. So I tried to make it reasonable. If they had an objection to some a point I was trying to get across, like for example, if I use the rail safety thing, if I was saying to them, in the long run, it will be cheaper to make the railway system safer than it will to cope with crashes and accidents when they happen. That was a reasoned argument. So I was then trying to persuade them to look at the long-term case, business case, if you like, on that. And that got them to then think, okay, well, she's reasoned. Whereas I think particularly when I researched other campaign groups back then, there was an awful lot of, oh, how do, dare you do this to us? And, oh, this is against our human rights, that sort of thing. And I, I just don't think that works. And in, in normal life, I still believe the same. Confrontation, aggression, um, getting into people's faces, it just doesn't work. Whereas if you're gentle, reasoned and persuasive, I think people then do tend to take on board what you're trying to say. I totally agree with you. Yeah, because, you know, even with the other podcasts that I've got, it's kind of exposing corruption and fraud. And I don't do it in an aggressive style and even with comments and everything. I just do it with a place of love and just to make change. And it seems to be working. You know, it's doing very well in the charts and everything. And, you know, you see some people doing an opposite strategy and they're wondering then why, you know, their numbers are so low and everything. So, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. And like when you were doing that, did you build a social media or did you have a website? What was your strategy for kind of getting awareness or did you just <laughs> le leave it up to the media? To be honest, back then, the Internet wasn't a big thing. He got a, the internet was in its infancy. God, I sound old now, don't I? But it was. It was. I mean, <laughs> I'm in the same boat, though. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, you had a mobile phone that was considered sophisticated. <laughs> um, so the social media really wasn't there. So we had to rely on the media. But then that back then, it was the 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 trick was to persuade the media. To stay on side and to keep following what we were doing and to keep um to keep supporting us so again that was a lot of persuasion also making things interesting trying to understand it from their point of view just the way you would do with an audience 
and keeping them on side. So social media for me didn't really start until I decided I was moving on from campaigning and then thinking to myself, okay, I'm now recovered from all my injuries. What do I do now? Because I'd lost everything. I had nothing. So I had to basically start from scratch grain. And that's when social media did help. And what have you found? Because I, I, I discussed this, of, you know, with different people, but I mean, I think it's a minefield. I'm trying to, <laughs> one channel of the video works brilliant, another it doesn't, in like different things, Instagram, Twitter, the whole, there's too much out there, to be honest, it, it wrecks my head. I wish we just had one. Everybody goes into this one and we've got it, but unfortunately, that's not how it is. What are you currently using? What's your, your go-to system and which do you prefer? My go, yeah, a bit like you. Um, I suppose it's because we haven't grown up with it. <laughs> I'm not, I don't get involved with lots of platforms because I just, well, it just gets me confused and then my head explodes. LinkedIn tends to be my primary platform, maybe because that's where businesses live. Um, and of course, it's businesses that hire me to speak. So it's a more natural fit for me. I do use Twitter, although that was bigger in days gone past than it is now. Um, but again, with Twitter, it, it's difficult because I tend to be a fairly private person. Although I stand up and I speak and I don't mind sharing, I don't like telling people what I had for lunch or, or you know, who I'm going out with or what, whatever. So, um, yeah, as, as the as what people will post has changed, I sort of backed off a little bit more. Um, plus I was, I did come across trolling once I got trolled um, and that sort of put me off quite a bit. And then I use Facebook, but also because Facebook tends to um, be a really good communication tool apart from just posting. And again, I don't tend to post personal stuff that often, I do. Um, but only when it occurs to me. And I think, again, because I haven't grown up with social media, it doesn't always occur to me <laughs> to take pictures and, and say to somebody, oh, look at this wonderful scene that I've just seen. Um, but when I, when I do remember, then I'll put it up there. And lastly, I do use YouTube because obviously, particularly since um, COVID appeared, videos, people get to see me in action through video. So that's become a much bigger part and that's about it. Those are sort of the platforms that I concentrate on. And just looping back on the, like the media uh, for when you were doing this, did, did you have to write to them or were they just picking it up themselves? Would you have to kind of let them know the story? Was there a way, you know, that you'd have to contact editors or journalists to get involved or were they, was it just something that they knew about? Oh, well, um, Back in the well, yeah, back when I was um, the rail crash survivor, if you like, the media found me because I was walking around in a plastic mask, for goodness sake, and that they they picked on me as if you like the poster girl of that train crash, the Labrador Grove train crash, because of the plastic mask. So I didn't have to really hunt for them. What I did have to learn to do was ha how to handle them. So things such as you never say to a journalist off the record and then expect them to leave it off the record just it doesn't happen and you have to give them enough for them to feel that it's exciting 
but I wouldn't expose myself too much to the media. I mean, these days, to be honest, I tend to hide from the media. Um, and then when I became a speaker, yes, there was some positive things that could, can be done as a speaker with the media, but there I tended to take it very low key because I'd learned a lot on dealing with the media beforehand. I wasn't that keen to get that involved with them, but you do get websites where you can log a story um, and a journalist will pick it up. I think it's called Pick, pick Your Own Story or something like that, where you can actually go on there and offer to talk about something. And if a journalist is interested, they might contact you. But, and this is a word of warning, I'm finding the journalists back in the 2000s very different to the journalists these days. The journalists I find these days don't bother to do that much research. <laughs> I think they're, um, they're writing what they're told to write, unfortunately. Yeah, and I've had a couple of instances where it's been completely wrong. And I'll tell you one funny little story was um, not so long ago, it was on the 20th anniversary of the train crash um, a couple of years back. There was myself and a fellow survivor and we were being interviewed and she is white with blonde hair. And obviously I'm Asian with black hair. And bear in mind, I had been known as Pam Warren, the lady in the mask. And I'm, her name was Jan. And the, the journalist came up and met us both, stuck out their hand to me and said, hello, Jan, I've read all about you. And I thought, hang on a sec, you got the wrong person. <laughs> so that's what I mean. It, you know, I'm not saying they're bad journalists. I'm just think, thinking, I don't think they're as researched as they used to be in the past. Very good. And I know because I've you've been on BBC, ITV, uh, CBS, reality, television. Then what's the difference there with when you're being in whether I'm not sure were they shows you run or were they just a journalist coming up to you to talk on the TV? But same uh, thing, no. yeah. What experience and how what tips would you give people? There were two types. One would be where I'd go into the studio and have an interview. Um, that would normally be if something had happened. So, for example, it was the 10th anniversary of the train crash. The, the television companies wanted to run a story on it. So, yes, you got invited onto the show. Those I still found quite hard work, particularly as the years went on. I was sort of sat again, what more do you want me to say? I don't know. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I get a bit bored about talking about the train crash. And even now, when I'm doing my keynote, yes, I talk about, I weave in stories of my experience, but only to highlight a different point I'm making that's relevant to today. With the other ones, CBS, BBC and ITV, that were actual programmes. So the programmes approached me and those I actually enjoyed because it wasn't a one-off interview. You'd be filming with them for quite a number of days and that might stretch over several weeks. And you would always get to know whoever the interviewer was, because I got to know um, the lovely Sir Trevor MacDonald quite well. So you got to know them, so you develop more of a relationship with them. And again, you had to be careful what you said, or you know, if there was something you didn't want to talk about, you just had to be clear, that is out of bounds. But you, again, you got that human connection with them, and that made talking to them and being interviewed a much more pleasant experience plus they always supplied tea and cakes 
<laughs> I also used to find when you went to these different studios, green rooms are very different. You could always tell the ones that are get, making money compared to the ones that aren't doing so well by how they stocked their green room. There's a little tip for you. <laughs> so like the green room as in the whole walls were covered and... Oh, no, no, sorry. The green room is like their break room. So... Okay, it... sorry. I was thinking it was where they oh, do the recording with the screen, yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's where if you've turned up at a studio, you always have to turn up early and obviously they don't just whisk you on in front of camera and then whisk you off again. So the green room is where everyone gathers, any interviewees gather, and then you're looked after. So you're given refreshments. And if it's morning, you might be given breakfast, bacon butters, that sort of thing. And as I said, cakes. But that's why it just made me amused. If I turned up and was given like a Coke and a sandwich from Marks and Spencer's, I'd be thinking, okay, that show is probably not doing so good. <laughs> Whereas if you go to somewhere like BBC, you get a China cup with, with tea, and you get continental breakfast laid out and stuff like that, you can tell that they're, they're um, doing quite well, I suppose. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, brilliant. So I suppose uh, you might let people know how they can contact you and what exactly that you're offering. Yeah, of course. Um, well, the best way to contact me is always through my website, which is www.pamwarren.co.uk. Um, you can also contact me via email which is just info at pamwarren.co.uk. It's nice and simple. Um, always happy to connect with people on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. And yeah, I mean, apart from that, if anyone is looking for, because I now work in um, helping people with change and disruption, which obviously is really relevant. To be honest, ever since COVID kicked in with companies, I've this has been my busiest period. <laughs> Because although we've gone to virtual, because of everything I learned through the train crash, the campaign, everything like that, the, the pandemic, it's sort of come to the fore, everything I learned about how to overcome all those challenges and to keep going, to stay resilient, which I think has been my saving grace all the way through these past 18 months. But I totally understand that not everyone has had the benefit of my past um, and that's what I then try to pass on uh, during my keynotes is to give them some ideas and the tools to cope with everything, particularly as I don't know about you, but personally, it's going to be around for a little longer. I can't see it ending anytime soon. Well, that's, that's what my other podcast is about. I'm trying to stop it as fast as possible, exposing all the corruption. But yeah, I, I mean, that's the way it's looking. And I mean, they're coming out even admitting that now, like. So, yeah, but that, I think it's brilliant because not only are you an inspiration for what you've achieved because, you know, you've done something and made a change that has saved, you know, millions of people because at the end of the day, the future based on that, but now you're inspiring others that will help them with their, you know, mission. So, I, you know, I commend you on that. Yeah, and their challenges because I, I understand perfectly that you don't have to be in a massive train crash. I mean, for goodness sake, life chucks all sorts, divorce, job loss, you know, death of a loved one. I mean, it, it, life is like that, isn't it? It's constantly chucking lemons at us. <laughs> I think it's rocks, not lemons. I wish it was, <laughs> I wish it was lemons. They don't hurt as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, it's always going to be the case. It's just never going to stop. Um, not until we turn our toes up and then have that long sleep. 
so yeah that's what I try to do is try and help people cope with all that okay no excellent listen Pam it's been wonderful speaking to you and I'll make sure that I put all the links of and email and everything on the podcast description both on the audio and the video so thank you very much well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you as well Roy so that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or on BitChute and YouTube, Speaking Podcast. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating and a review as it really helps in the charts and share with your friends. Until next week, take care. This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. Thank mm-hmm. you.